The following podcast was recorded and produced by lapsed Star Wars enjoyers. While the hosts approach the material with some residual fondness, they are frequently reductive, dismissive, inaccurate, disrespectful, and deeply unfair to George Lucas, Timothy Zahn, and the Star Wars intellectual property in general. If this sounds like a bad time to you, you will have a bad time. Caveat listener, and on to the show. Hello and welcome all to the world's foremost and only Tampa Bay Area Science Fiction Convention podcast. Uh, no, just kidding. It's, 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 your, it's your boys at the Thronder Dome, the, the world's only Star Wars podcast uh, made by Gen X for Gen X. Uh, I am your host, Dr. Daniel Doughty. With me as always, my intrepid co-host, Ronnie Gardaki. Ronnie, how you feeling this evening? I'm feeling fine. I'm feeling good. I'm ready to talk about whatever this is. <laughs> whatever it is we've been doing these <laughs> these last few weeks. Yeah, I agree. It can sometimes get a little bit uh, hazy. You know, what are, what are we actually doing here? What is a Wookiee? Who is Timothy Zahn? Although we're getting a really good idea about who Timothy Zahn is from, uh, from his notes. Hey, speaking of the notes, um, we've said before that something we value here on Thronderdome is transparency and honesty. You know, the buck stops here. So I wanted to let everyone know that I once again allowed my library checkout of the annotated ebook to lapse, and some other nerd checked it out. David Donkey and Lonnie Gardner, making their competing podcast, Thrawn Rena, checked it out. And not only that, like someone else checked it out, plus someone else is on hold, like waiting on it to be returned ahead of me. This is astonishing. I, I don't know. Clearly, I mean. Obviously, what's going on is everyone's listening to Thronderdome, and so they want to actually you know read this stuff for themselves. But it was a little irritating. Uh, and of oh, course, I think you're the, the real donkey because uh, it's a real jackass move losing the book. <laughs> <laughs> well played, Ronald. Well played. But I was going. Are we going to have to title I, this episode "Daniel's Folly Part 2? No, we're going to title this episode "Daniel Does Something Good for the Economy" because I was moved to actually spend money. On this project, and I bought my own damn ebook copy of *Heir to the Empire*, the annotated 20th anniversary edition. So there you go, everybody. I I I, I buckled down and actually spent money on this project. So everyone better appreciate it. Well, good. More more blood money into the coffers of Disney. <laughs> I th- I prefer to think of it as blood money into the coffers of Betsy the editor, really. How much money do you think that Timothy Zahn makes off of these? That's a really good question. I see. I would wonder, like, what kind of like residuals deal he has for when the Thrawn character is used in other media. You know, because he's appeared on like some like the animated series and stuff. Um, like, does Zahn get a cut whenever he's used anywhere else? Does he like credited as sole creator, or is it like he signed away the rights to Mara Jade and Dravis? And Thrawn, when he agreed to be Lucasfilm's, you know, little henchman. I don't know. I could see him doing it just because he's starstruck by being a part of Star Wars. Oh, yeah. So to speak. Yeah, he'd he'd sign anything they put in front of him. Oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah, and then then years later when he's... uh, when he has to clip coupons just to make ends meet, he he justifies it to himself. It's like, you know, just being part of Star Wars was enough. I don't He's need there. the residuals. 
<laughs> he's there uh, clipping coupons on uh, for cat food because that's what he's reduced to eating. And he looks out his window in his uh, disgusting tenement apartment and sees a giant billboard for Thrawn Five. Uh, where they made a Thrawn I, I like how you called universe. it not not cat food but cat feed. It makes it sound even more <laughs> gross. <laughs> well, that's that's all he can afford. He can't afford cat food. <laughs> So anyway, well, anyway, with with all that with all that out of the way, my bearing my soul, being honest with the audience, these are my two most favorite things to do. This is one of the reasons why I'm one of the most respected podcasters in the game. Um, this is, after all, a recap show. We are uh, recapping chapter by chapter the entirety of Heir to the Empire by uh, Dean of American Letters, Timothy Zahn. So that means we can pivot right into recounting this amazing saga from a galaxy uh, a long time ago, or however that goes. So when we last left off, uh, the end of Chapter 22, Luke had escaped the shed. He had, which is a funny thing to say, Luke had escaped the shed and hijacked a skip ray blast boat, uh, only to be followed in hot pursuit by the the hate-filled Mara Jade, who hopped into the other skip ray blast boat parked next to it to give chase. So, uh... With that together, uh, we we uh, on chapter twenty three, we uh, we jump right in. Uh, Luke, Luke's our point of view character that uh, he the, the scopes are telling him he's got another of Card's fighter ships pulling up on him from behind, and he's been playing it safe. He's flying low and slow because he's not familiar with this particular kind of spaceship. He's trying to maybe get a little bit of that uh, sensor baffling effect off of the trees. Um, but that does mean that Mara Jade has easily caught up to him. He, he also spotted that Star Destroyer in orbit, so any idea he had about maybe trying to escape that way uh, is kind of put on ice. Um, so, uh, Mara is riding right on his tail, and <laughs> this, this I thought, this it almost felt like slapstick, that uh, Zahn sets up that Luke is going to attempt a uh, a... a a, an acrobatic uh, trick, a drop kick Koya Grand turn, uh, killing his forward momentum and loop rolling into another direction. He twists the control stick and just crashes instantly. Uh, being no- being knocked out, you know, the skip ray goes into the treetops and Luke Skywalker is knocked out for like the fifth or sixth time in this book. <laughs> so he, he, goes, he goes black. Um, we then shift our perspective over to uh, Talon Card who is uh, receiving the delegation from that Star Destroyer. Uh, Admiral Thrawn, has, uh, you know, he's on board these three shuttles that land at uh, summer camp. Um, Card's pretty impressed by the kind of parade ground synchrony, you know, the disciplined uh, marching and whatnot that you get with the TIE Fighters and the Stormtroopers. You know, they're, they're not letting it slide just because they don't have an Emperor anymore, you know. Um, and Thrawn comes down, he's, you know, Card greets him. And uh, Thrawn instantly drops the dime that uh, he knows all about the little kerfuffle with the fighters. Uh, that, you know, they, they spotted it from, uh, from up above. They saw all that going down. You know, a little curious to see that happening right before you land at the summer camp. Uh, in, so... in, 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 this, uh, in this sequence, we have a, a grand example of Zanian uh, description, which is oh, yes. uh, the line, following them came a short, wiry being of unknown race with dark gray skin, bulging eyes, a protruding jaw, and the look of a bodyguard. <laughs> what the That's fuck right. is the look of a bodyguard? I love that Timothy, that Mr. Zahn, 
is completely wedded to the three bullet points he came up with to describe the Nogri. Like, we really... We actually do get a little bit more later, spoiler alert, but, like, every time he talks about When I think of bodyguards, I think of short and wiry. <laughs> I, I like to have a bodyguard who uh, who you don't see coming. You know, that's that's really what I'm after. Uh, like but, yeah, just protruding like just jaw and gray sunglasses skin. and an earpiece or something? He had a he had a hard bitten look of a guy who's seen everything, you know. Um, <laughs> he had he had he had the uh, he had the uh, the forearms of a bouncer, someone who's used to throwing people out of uh, dives, you know. You can't just say uh, that someone looks like their job description. It would be like describing Daniel as looking like a librarian. <laughs> and I don't even have my uh, my hair up in a bun with a pencil through it. You don't have you hair. Know? I don't even have hair. That's like the the thing about library. I don't wear glasses either. Yeah, you You're can't. A hairless you can't be bastard. <laughs> I'm a hairless bastard, stealth underground librarian. You never see me coming. That's what makes me such a good one, and that's what makes the Snowgree such a good bodyguard. Uh, but uh, Thrawn instantly, you know, he he lets Card know, you know, he's he saw what went down. So Card has to come up with a story on his feet. Um, so he, he concocts a little tale about, oh, there's a disgruntled employee who broke into the shed and stole some goods and then stole the ship. And there was another employee in pursuit. Um, and, uh, Thrawn says, was in pursuit, Captain. See, cause they saw the crash happen, which Card was not aware of yet. So he kind of gets like a, you know, a chill going down his back that way. Um, Thrawn pretty kind of funnily instantly pulls, you know, Card is like, oh, well, if you'll excuse me, Grand Admiral, I need to arrange a rescue party. And then uh, Thrawn instantly pulls like, oh, allow me, and starts giving orders to stormtroopers to take a shuttle over there and go check it out, you know, rather than let Card cover up whatever he was trying to cover up. And, you know, Card has to grit his teeth and like, oh, thank you so much. Uh, and then continues on with, uh, with the tour of the summer camp. So Card has to keep it together and, uh, you know, not, not let it slide that his whole operation is uh, on is is really on the edge of a knife right now. There was an exchange between Thrawn and Card that I liked where Thrawn says, I take it the pursuer was someone special? Card let his face harden a bit. All of my associates are special, he said. Which I <laughs> which is a lie. I don't think that, Ghent is very special, nor Chin. I don't yeah Dravis is very special, but he's not on Card's organization. He's his own man. Um, but I'm with you. I, I don't think Ghent is all that uh, is all that special. You know, sorry, sorry, I don't agree with the Star Wars nerds who think Ghent is really cool. Evidently, but uh, we get yeah. we get some more Ghent in these uh, chapters. We get a little. We get a lot more Ghent, um, and we're actually coming up to that because we now sort of switch POV to Han and Lando. Uh, are hunkered down with the with the electro binoculars, uh, watching what's going on down at summer camp. Uh, the Ghent had taken them part part of the whole like uh, you know steamed hams, uh, 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 flop sweat routine that uh, Card was forced to do is he got Ghent to take a, a ship and just kind of hop Han and Lando over to you know on a hillside somewhere else where they can just tuck away while the uh, the Empire is visiting. But they're keeping an eye on it. Uh, they're, they're, they're watching on the, excuse me, not electro binoculars, macro binoculars. Excuse me. Like, what are, what are macro right. binoculars? Um, I think it's like binoculars, but it's like digital and it looks grainy, you know, like in the movies. 
They should just call them space binoculars. They should just call them space binoculars. I, I completely agree. Um, space should be but, a prefix uh, more often used in uh, Star Wars. <laughs> they don't really... Do, do they use it much? I don't. I guess they don't. I mean, we like to use it. We like to say space wizards and stuff like that, but I guess they don't really... In the Star Wars universe, they should use that. Yeah, I guess they don't know they're in space. Yeah, they, much as the fish doesn't know that it swims in water, Star Wars guys don't know that they're in space. Well, we <laughs> got so we got a, we got a whopper of a description coming up here uh, from our buddy oh, yeah. Ghent, because uh, Lando's wondering what a Yalasimiri is, and Ghent yeah, because he mentioned that like uh, he mentioned like oh the Empire's back they they've been uh, once or twice to pick up Isalamiri. Yeah, so Ghent yeah. calls them uh, little furry snakes with legs. And let me tell you, Ghent, buddy, uh, snakes with legs, those are known as lizards. <laughs> That's an excellent point. That is kind of the... It's a bit... Defi- well, I was going to say that the definition of snake is just a lizard without legs, but that's not true because there are legless lizards. Uh, because a snake is a particular kind of legless lizard, and there are other lineages of lizard who have lost their legs. But I concur with you that if you're going to describe something as a snake with legs, you're, you are talking about a lizard. You know, there's just no way around that. But they're little and furry. So, you know, that's a little... I bet they'd space. be adorable. I would, you, know, you could wrap them around your neck like a stole, you know? And then no Jedi could hassle you. You could go, you could go walking up and down the street in Coruscant and no one could give you any guff. And you have this Why adorable Why is Zahn making thousands of dollars off of Yell Samiri plushies? <laughs> Yeah, uh, Isela Miri feather boas. Uh, yeah, he must have just got screwed out of the merchandising rights. I th- I think so because there's a lot there's a lot you could uh, there's a lot you could do with this. Um, speaking of, actually of description, there was there was a touch that I thought was really good uh, in this. Uh, it's actually just before the little furry snakes with legs bit. Uh, it kind of describes Han and Lando are are you know hunkered down, uh, watching with the binoculars. Says Han half turned the serrated grass-like plants they were lying on top of, digging into his shirt with the movement. There's an actual nice little touch of something like alien on this alien planet. I appreciated that. You know, that was nice. That was kind of like, oh, okay, great. <laughs> we actually have some kind of flavor of of what this environment is. You know, and and that it's another planet. That's cool. Uh. So they observe one of the shuttles lifting off, and they surmise that has something to do with the skip ray crash that everybody just saw. Gent tells them that they were uh, keeping some kind of prisoner. Gent doesn't know anything about it. You know, he keeps his head down. But he must have gotten out and caused that ruckus. And Han gives Gent uh, a little bit of the third degree about this prisoner. But in a Sergeant Schultzian manner, Gent knows nothing. You know, he just kind of stammers. Oh, oh really this, this, next one, this next bit is great, because you get Han saying... Uh, Maybe, uh, maybe when he, uh, cards start dealing with kidnappers and then uh, we don't deal with kidnappers, oh, yeah. Gent protested. And then, well, you're dealing with one now, Han told him, nodding toward the group of Imperials. That little gray guy in there, side note, I love that he's just calling him like that little gray guy. <laughs> yes. That's one of the aliens who tried to kidnap Leia and me. What, Lando peered through the macro binoculars again? Are you sure? It's one of the species anyway. We'd stop at the time to get names. Now, we know we know from context that that this little gray guy is related to the people that tried to 
kidnap Han and Leia, but, like, think of the cantina and how there's, like, so many dozens of individual species there, and this just is, like, incredible racism. (laughs) It is, it it is pretty, uh, it, it would be... I, I agree. As a, it's a bit of a leap. I mean, I guess the fact that he's he's there with Imperials and that kind of. Although they're just assuming that the little gray guys are working for the Imperials at this point. They don't have any actual you know hard information on that. So I'm still I'm still thinking this is in the in the arena of space racism or spacism as I call it. Uh, you but, you, uh, you put a few space beers in him, and Han's got some definite opinions. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, a man who wears a vest like that, you know, yeah, we all we all know what's going on there. Uh, Remember his ambivalent attitude towards slavery. Yeah, and his and his lack of any sort of uh, compassion for droids, even though we know that they have emotions and can make friendships and feel pain. That's true. Mm-hmm. Han's mm-hmm. a real anti-hero. He's pretty. He's a pretty cool guy. <laughs> I, I really admire him and want to be like him. I, I do like sort of go, going along with the uh, the little gray guy uh, bit. I did like that uh, Han. You know, he's looking and sees the the blue skinned imperial officer in front and asking, "Any idea who that guy with the red eyes is?" <laughs> and you just know, you just know that that's the kind of sentence that you have to say all the time as a Star Warser. You know, you always have to be like, hey, uh, what's the deal with that guy with a squid face? <laughs> or Does anyone know who this devil man is? <laughs> that kind of stuff. Yeah, uh, now that I think about it, he probably sees like five blue skinned guys a week. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's there's we already. Hey, you know, even in the well, we're, you know, we're talking about the cantina scene. There's two blue skinned guys with red eyes in the cantina scene. You know, they don't look uh, all that much like humans. They look like greys, but, you know, it's, uh, it's you know, worth pointing out there. Apropos um, of nothing, I just imagined Han Solo yelling at uh, Thrawn and calling him I Ginger. <laughs> that, that, was, that is one of the, the harshest uh, racial epithets you can throw at Thrawn's people. It's uh, that's really that's really asking for it. Thrawn Thrawn would have every right to just bow up and punch him in the face if he called him an eye ginger. It would be uh, funny if all like that. all of the different Thrawn, Thrawn uh, species had like different colored eyes and they weren't all just mono red colored. Yeah. Like like uh, some of them have like the the eye color of like uh, a billiards ball or dice. <laughs> Or uh, or like Mountain Dew, yeah, like code a nice, red. a nice green, yeah, code code. Well, Blackout. not code red. That's that he already has the code red. <laughs> one one thing I thought was funny about this part is, um, well, I'll just read. I'll just read a passage here, and you'll see what I mean. Uh, so, Gens answering the question, any idea who the guy with the red eyes is? I think he's a Grand Admiral or something. Took over Imperial operations a while back. I don't know his name. Han looked at Lando, found the other seeing the same look right back at him. A Grand Admiral? Lando repeated carefully. Yeah, look, they're going... Look, they're going. There's nothing else to see here. Can we please... Um, see, let's get back to the Falcon, Han muttered. Uh, a Grand Admiral. No wonder the New Republic had been getting the sky cut out from under them lately. It's like, what do these guys think a Grand Admiral is? <laughs> like, well, they're for, all really impressed. Well, furthermore, they say that they don't have any records of uh, Imperial Grand Admirals on the Falcon, but they do have, like, their 
G.I. Joe character cards on Coruscant. <laughs> right. Yeah, it is it is uh it is kind of funny the way like computer storage works in Star Wars where you have to I don't know. It does seem like the kind of thing like you could I, it can't be like that much actual data space to just have like a, a roster of known Imperials you might be facing if you're flying a smuggler ship. But uh, everything I runs mean, on laser disc. <laughs> Every, everything's on zip drives, so you gotta, <laughs> you, you, you know, there's there's really uh, you're, you're you're mailing them back and forth uh, with like FedEx overnight. So we shift uh, perspectives again to Luke, and I want to share the uh, first sentence of the Luke portion of this chapter. I mean the second Luke portion of this chapter which is mm-hmm. the strangest thing about waking up this time Luke decided dimly side note I think he decides a lot of things dimly uh, <laughs> was that he didn't actually hurt anywhere <laughs> yes and I think that's a good point like just having that sentence the strangest thing about waking up this time because it really has been like this is one of the major motifs of Heir to the Empire is Luke like groggily waking himself up from getting throttled in some manner, um, you know. It's every time. Every time uh, I see Luke waking up, I I, I I hoot and holler, I cheer. But yeah, so well, uh, we, you know, we're we're back, baby. He's waking up. The skip ray had some pretty advanced crash proofing, uh, as he's physically perfectly fine. R two D two is in good shape, except his information retrieval jack had been snapped off. He lost his little dingus that he sticks into things disgustingly which you know i mean i feel for the guy (laughs) i mean that's happened to you (laughs) that has not happened to me and i know what you're referring to and that's very personal information to talk about on the podcast (laughs) Uh, listeners rest assured i have never had my information jack uh, snapped off of my body uh, that is not anything that has happened to me. So, well, who are you going to believe, Daniel or Ronnie? Daniel, who was honest and upfront about his failure to uh, secure an ebook, I, I think. I think I know what side the audience is going to be. Or on. Ronnie, who's trust. won every Thronderdome ever. <laughs> All right, we'll we'll leave it to the listeners. <laughs> Choose your own adventure. Uh, and we had another. Uh, we had something I noticed that there, there was a. Uh, he's he's getting out of the of the wreckage. The hatchway door popped open without serious complaint. And that's the second time that Zahn has noted a door opening, like because he talked about how the shed opened without a fuss. So he keeps talking about talking approvingly about these doors that open and and don't complain about it. Maybe doors guess, are sentient in the Star Wars universe. We don't know. And if you think about it, a door is a type of droid. Yeah, I mean, it's probably all just AI. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, that's why everyone looks all fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, R2 and Luke spot the other ruined fighter. So, uh, uh, and Luke reasons that uh, Mara must have likewise fared okay in the crash. I guess we should have said Mara's... Did we say that Mara's fighter went down as well? Like, Luke crashed into the trees and, like... The, the atmospheric disturbance was such that Mara lost control and also crashed, so they both went down. Um, L- Luke, like a credulous idiot, decides to check on Mara and make sure she's okay. 
So he goes over to this other, you know, the, the, the hatch that opens the hatch and looks in there like, oh, he sees like the top of her head. And he's like, mm, I better go check if she's see if she's OK and walks in and is instantly held up by Mara pointing a blaster at him, which is why we love her. She just does not go in for his corn pone shenanigans. I do uh, like how he can make sure that it's Mara Jade that had been chasing him because he sees the shimmering red gold hair. That's right. Yeah, that's and right. I, and I just like that. I I like that because it's the one thing that that Zahn actually describes ever. Yeah. Well, also her green eyes. So, there you go. That's yeah, I wonder things. why a sci-fi <laughs> author would spend inordinate time describing a female character. <laughs> um. So uh, so anyway, by, at Blaster Point, she orders Luke to grab the survival kit from the compartment. Uh, and here's another fun... I, I love these close readings because we can find all these little ticks uh, that Zahn has. It says, inside was an unfamiliarly labeled metal case with the very familiar look of a survival kit. This is just like the unfamiliar cut of the coveralls we had earlier. Like, I don't... What does what a familiar label on a survival kit look like for Luke? Why is all of Talon Card's stuff unfamiliar to Luke? We will never know these questions. <laughs> it's just thrown in. I like how now Luke is even flashing back to previously in the novel because now he's flashing back to when uh, Ben Kenobi was saying goodbye for the last time. and and uh, That's right. When he was on the rooftop telling C-3PO some shit about uh, it's important to to center individual people instead of large masses, etc. Yeah, yeah. Typical liberal, huh? Anyway. So, so I can't wait until the <laughs> till the novel is just uh, imploding upon itself. <laughs> Where it's just Luke having flashbacks to more and more recent events in the novel. That would be pretty good. Again, just completely that, that would be, recursive. This would be... See, that would dovetail so well with my idea that he keeps losing body parts... Because then he could flash back to that time his leg got cut off when his other arm gets cut off. Um, again, wasted opportunity. I need to I need to talk to TZ about edits we can make. Um, so uh, they clamber out of the ruined ship. Uh, you know, Luke's still at Blaster Point here, and they hear the whine of an approaching ship. And Mara at first assumes it's a rescue from Card, but then she listens a little more closely and kind of concentrates. And then she's like, "All right, we gotta move. Get into the woods." And so she yells at Luke to go into the woods and take uh, R2-D2 down there. And they, they, they go into the woods and, and uh, go to ground so they can observe the crash site. And they watch as an Imperial shuttle hovers over and then lands. Uh, and they watch the stormtroopers kind of survey the wreckage for bodies or survivors. They pack up, of course, when there's none to be found. Um, and Luke, being an idiot, is like, oh, okay, well, it's good. It's fine to go back after they leave. And uh, Mara points out that, well, they probably left, like, a, a sensor or a trap or something, idiot. We have to go deeper into the woods. Um, so they do. They go deeper into the woods uh, and then have kind of a chance to talk. Luke tries to thank Mara. She says to cram it. Uh, again, great character. Uh, she says she, yeah, she's she only treats Luke him. like shit the entire novel. <laughs> it's really something. I, I, and I know you've said before that the Mara Jade-Luke relationship is like that between Maya and my wife, but uh, she has never been so openly disdainful of me. I was um, going to say, like, Luke Skywalker seems like the guy that would be in hock to a dom. 
<laughs> oh, for sure. He is a absolute mark to be a pay pig, except that he wouldn't even realize that's what's going on. <laughs> he would... He would just purely buy it. We're just like, oh, you need you need five thousand more dollars, honey. Okay. If there's any yeah. possible way to bumble into a dom sub relationship, that would be Luke. Luke Skywalker would find a way to do it, and I think he may have with this one. Uh, but you know, Mara says to cram it. Don't thank me. She's only keeping him alive because she doesn't know what Talon Card has or hasn't said about the situation. So. She's looking to just get everybody back to summer camp uh, in one piece so she can learn what kind of lie she needs to be covering for, you know. So it's uh, she reckons it's a three days hike to Hilliard City. Uh, oh, and uh, Ronnie, did you know that uh, there are a couple there's a couple in Tampa who are friends with uh, Timothy Zahn named the Hilliards? God damn it. <laughs> so well, I guess there's also a friend named City. <laughs> But but, uh, Luke has to kind of convince Mara not to just scrap R2-D2 by noting that his sensors could be useful. You know, even though they're they're limited in their functionality and range by the the metal content in the trees, it still might be worthwhile having something with, you know, monster detecting radar uh, with you. Um, and, And Luke's kind of like sort of advocating for himself not to be killed and uh it, it they kind of get around to the topic of you know how much Mara hates him and that he took everything from her and Luke I think I really do love like um as she says here you destroyed my life she said bitterly it's only fair that I destroy yours and Luke counters with will killing me bring your old life back just just the single lamest like nice try man nice try also that passage <laughs> just made me think in depth about what Luke's life is right now i mean he's got he's got an x-wing he's got an r2d2 that's about it i mean other than sort of maybe kind of helping his sister train in the way of the jedi he doesn't have a whole lot yeah. going on he doesn't it, really have a lot. It's kind of yeah. You're right. It kind of reminds me of uh, the Simpsons uh, episode where Principal Skinner turns out to be an imposter and like, yeah, this is right. uh, <laughs> this is Armin's frozen peas. This is Armin's copy of Swank. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, Luke is the the sole remaining member of a a monkish order, which has certain kind of ascetic values. So that's that's him living up to it. Or maybe he's just kind of a loser. With, without a lot going on. See, the thing about uh, being the last Jedi is that there's no other Jedi to yell at you for being a bad Jedi. Exactly. You get to, to you know, set the pace. It's a, it's, that's the dream. I'm just imagining he's using all these ancient scrolls as, like, napkins and shit. <laughs> um, so uh, they have a little more back and forth about a somehow getting in touch with a card, sending a message back. Um, so there's some kind of like little balloon transmitter receiver thingy that they can float up above the trees to send a message. But of course, you know, everyone has their you know uh, signals intelligence up looking for a signal. They don't want to alert the Imperials. Um, so 
uh, Luke concocts the idea of like, hey, well, here's what we can do. We can send an encrypted message from R2-D2 to my X-Wing fighter. They have been, you know, interfaced for a lot of time, 3,000 hours of flight time. So he's bound to have molded it to his own personality. So that's how you know it could be extra secure, I guess. Um, but this little exchange does have, So it's the I equivalent think, of R2-D2, like having an ass groove on a couch. That's exactly it, yeah. <laughs> R2-D2 has his ass groove very well worn into the X-Wing. So the idea is that they send a an encrypted message over to Luke's X-Wing computer that it can decode, and then whenever Card goes to check on the X-Wing, they'll see the little, you know, the answering machine light blinking, and they can play the message and, and communicate that way. Um but this this whole exchange does have my favorite line so far in the entire novel, uh, where Luke is saying, someone's bound to check on the ship eventually, he pointed out. All we have to do is dump the message into storage and leave some kind of signal flashing that it's there. You have people who know how to pull a dump, don't you? Any idiot knows how to pull a dump, Mara glared at him. <laughs> Mara, Mara Jade yelling, any idiot knows how to pull a dump is so good. Oh, that's good. I like the line where uh, Mara says, I thought standard procedure was to wipe and reload drone memories every six months to keep that from happening. And Luke goes, I like R2 the way he is. So that's sort of an explanation huh. for why R2-D2 is the way he is. Right, right. He doesn't do the, uh, he doesn't do like the, the defragging on the hard drive treatment that every other droid does. Have they been doing that to C-3PO the whole time? I don't know. Uh, we'll we'll get to to C three PO in the later <laughs> chapters. Boy, will we? That's <laughs> yes. That's a good one. Um, so uh, they're discussing how they're going to hike out of there. R two D two, of course, is not really suited to this kind of terrain. Um, so they're going to rig up a kind of sledge for him to go, and they call it a travois, which is uh, that's a nice ten dollar word that I'd never seen before. Uh, a, yeah, I, I should be able to rig up a dragging frame to carry him on. A travois or something like that, Luke says. Um, if you give me my lightsaber for a minute, I can cut a couple of those branches off. And then Mara is like, no dice. She goes and uh, whips it out, lights that lightsaber, and very efficiently cuts down some branches from the trees, uh, impressing Luke with her, uh, with her capability. And so they're all they're getting ready to start their three-day hike, to Hilliard City. A lot of this chapter is pretty repetitive in that it, a lot of it is just Luke trying to see some goodness or something beyond uh, Mara's uh, surface level hatred and sarcasm, but failing to do so. For example, there's a, there's a passage where for a long minute she stared at him, her jaw tight with clenched teeth, her face a mirror of fiercely battling emotions. Bitterness, hatred, desires for survival, and something else. Something that Luke could almost believe might be a touch of loyalty. And it, uh-huh. it's just funny that like Luke is just like, No, you're not you're not the hard case that you are portraying yourself as and it's like, shut up, you bumpkin. <laughs> and that goes on for about ten pages. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, I kind of liked the, I, I liked the, uh, the chapter. It felt, it felt Star Warsy, you know, with like spaceship crashes and stormtroopers coming to check it out and stuff. And, and God help me, you know, maybe I am just a glutton for punishment, or I just like the idea of a pretty, pretty lady yelling at me. 
But I, I thought the the Mara back and forth stuff was was pretty good. And at least it's at least characters being characters with each other, which was something that kind of was a bit lacking until now. But I, I think I don't know. I think it's kind of kicking into gear. With, I think uh, you could have cut out a bit of the the back and forth just because we already know that Luke isn't going to get his face shot off. So right, right, he's Luke Skywalker. Yeah, he's not going to. You're right. You're absolutely right. Although and it's just it would more be t- amazing if he did. <laughs> it's just more. It's just more of the same go around of just like eh, I don't know why you hate me so much. And Mara saying, "Shut up! I hate you so much." <laughs> so that's, just like that's we get to the last chapter and, and Leia's like, "Whatever happened to Luke?" Oh yeah, we we found his dead body somewhere on this uh, metal tree planet. Uh-huh. <laughs> so that wraps up chapter 23. On to chapter 24, where uh, Han and Lando are back at summer camp and uh, talking to Talon Card, who, uh, who tries to play a cagey about who the visitors were. Uh, apparently, Ghent was not supposed to let them out of the ship. <laughs> but, you know, that's kind of... Uh, you, you know, the, 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 the horse is out of the barn uh, for that. Um, Card is a little uh, frustrated with Ghent. Card um, is also very so, insistent on them completing their dinner, which I found interesting. <laughs> yeah, he was. He was very like, like, okay, stay for dinner. We'll have. We'll just take a little while to get everything back out because apparently he had again part of the steamed hams flop sweat was uh, <laughs> having somebody I don't know who I guess one of the smuggler employees uh, clean up all the dinner plates and stuff and put all that stuff away so it doesn't look like we have guests. Or something. Well, though I wouldn't really think that, like... I mean, you have a big dinner with your whole company every night. So it's always going to be like that. I don't know. It's... I don't know. Um, so Han and Card have a bit of a back and forth. Uh, Han is trying to get Card to kind of open up about what the heck's going on. Card is being like, hey, that's information, buddy. And that costs money. So Card is not divulging what the Grand Admiral's name is. And I thought that was funny because, like... Surely... In a galaxy where Wedge Antilles hears about a lost dark Jedi on Jomark, Thrawn's name is going to get around, right? He's like the commander-in-chief of the fucking Empire. How is, how is no one going to know his name? That does not make sense to me. Also, like, what does, what does the name do for Han in this immediate uh, circumstance? Right, it doesn't really change any kind of like, like situation. He, he doesn't I guess, have any Grand Admiral files. He said that already. Right, and if and if like he, yeah, so it's it like to help him search for Grand Admiral files because I think you just go and like if you have the Grand Admiral keyword, then you look for the blue guy with red eyes, and you got it. Yeah, where's that uh, blue skinned freak? <laughs> where's that? Where's that ginger eyed loser? Um. Card talks them into staying for dinner while they wait for the Star Destroyer to clear out because, you know, the, the, the landing party has gone, but there's still an Imperial Star Destroyer in orbit. So, you know, maybe not necessarily want to try to, you know, skedaddle with that hanging over you. But Han says he still wants to go back to the Falcon for uh, reasons. Yeah, that'll do. Um, and instead, Han and Lando go snooping around that shed that Gent told them about. Uh, Card catches them. You know, he, he walks up and is like, hey, what are you guys doing? Uh, and there's a little bit of another round of back and forth. Then Lando emerges from the shed with a Mikrel power supply with uh, Sibha Habadit branding. Just the sort of thing that might power a prosthetic hand. And as th- this comes out, Han pulls his blaster out and sticks it in Card's ribs. Um, so Card knows the jig is up. 
He admits that Luke Skywalker was his captive, that it was Luke Skywalker who stole and crashed the skip ray. I and, do like uh, how Han- I do like how Lando has to jog Han's memory a bit because Han is just squinting at the uh, the thing, and uh, I've seen it before, but I don't remember where. And then Lando says, "You saw it during the war," which I don't really think <laughs> narrows anything down. That doesn't really. Right. Where have I seen that for? Oh, you know, during the war. What? <laughs> what the hell is that supposed to mean? The war that's still going on? I mean, anyway. What do you think they call the war in in Star Wars? Do they call it like? I don't know. I Galaxy War Two. <laughs> well, I ran in. I ran into that as I was making my notes because there was a uh, you know something else comes up that like you know what happened you know there was something happened during the hostilities that were ongoing during the time of the original trilogy. I'm calling it the Rebellion War. I mean that seems to capture it. But yeah, now, is I don't that know what, what the they rebels call it? call it? You know the the war of uh, galactic aggression. <laughs> that's that's true. There might there might be a, a euphemistic uh, term for it on one side or the other. Yeah. Um, God, I would check I out... would I would give I would give uh, Timothy Zahn a thousand dollars if in this book he just called it the Star Wars. That would be really good. That would be really good. Because that explains the title of the movie. Boom. Yeah, everyone loves that when you tie something together like that. Um, Just a line of dialogue uh, where Luke goes, I wonder if we'll finally be done with this Star War. <laughs> with the Star War. Oh, man. Um, I Personally, as, a, as, a, as, a, as someone trained in the historian's craft... Uh, I do have a history degree from an accredited university. Uh, yeah, so I do would... I. What does that mean? <laughs> hey, that's right. Yeah, we're uh, we're we're degree buddies. Um, I would I would say that I would classify this, and if I was doing periodization, if I was doing a historiographical review of the literature and coming up with sort of standardized periodization terms, um, I would call this the uh, later phase of the Clone Wars. Just to be annoying, really. <laughs> I, I would call it uh, Star Wars. You would call it Star Wars. Hey, that's a good idea for a movie. Um, so anyway, back to the recap. Uh, and then, one last thing and is... then each battle could be called an episode. <laughs> <laughs> You've really cracked the case here, Ronnie. I, I get get Hollywood on the phone. Uh, one last little bit here. Han wants to go check out Luke's X-Wing, but it's getting dark and Card cautions against going into the woods at night. So Han agrees to wait until morning. Kind of uncharacteristically, but I guess he's scared of night monsters too. From here, we cut to uh, Admiral Thrawn's uh, art chamber. Uh, so he and Peleon are kind of going over the day's events really. They're kind of they're kind of talking it through with each other. Um well, they picked up the encrypted signal that Luke sent out to the X-wing, but of course it's it's super encrypted so it's going to be a while before they can crack it. Thrawn surmises that since the two pilots of the crashed fighter's remains weren't found, they're alive and trying to make it back to civilization. Um Palayan was already on the case when uh uh Thrawn asks like, "Ah, could you do an analysis to see where they will exit the forest 
The plan was already on board. Uh, was already on it. He uh, impressing Thrawn. I thought that was a nice touch. Like, hey, you know, there's a reason why Peleon is his right hand. You know, he's actually, you know, he's he's not a total uh, bumbling doofus. Uh, and he he explains that ah, Hilliard City is really the only candidate for all they they will make for. Um, but he's a little confused as to why Thrawn is so invested in this. You know, some smuggler squabble over you know stolen uh, you know starfighters and whatnot. But Thrawn has seen through Card, um, and I think that's kind of, I do like that kind of character element that Talon Card thinks of himself as a really cool operator who is the puppet master of everything. But Thrawn, I think, has a talent for seeing right through him and cutting to the quick and like cutting his bullshit. Um, but Thrawn has seen through Card and knows that uh, it must be a very high value person who is attempting to escape and that he's trying to keep who that is secret because there weren't any public. You know, they didn't pick up in their signals intelligence. They didn't pick up any, like, distress calls or, like, hey, here's a crash scene. Go out and check it out. Nothing like that. They're trying to keep it all under wraps. So there's a chance that it's Skywalker. The clock is ticking, however, because the strike on the Sluis Van shipyards is going to be in just a few days. And Thrawn is very insistent that the timetable for this operation be adhered to. Because he has, you know, he has this very precise plan <clears throat> with a lot of moving parts. So they can't well, be delaying uh, anything. As you know, Sluicy art clearly indicates a biannual cyclic pattern. And <laughs> you need to hit That's them right. at their most sluggish point. At their most sluggish point. Yes. Yes. I'm going to actually give praise um, to Zahn here because I think that uh, he laid out why, how and why Thrawn thinks that uh, Skywalker's in uh, one of the skip raids. And he does it. Yeah, yeah. He does it in a way that you know, it doesn't seem like cheating. Yeah, he, he, he does this whole Sherlock Holmes thing, but right, it's not, it, it's, it reads as, okay, a, a, a smart, attentive guy picked up on this, rather than, oh, well, his super brain power means that he knows this already. Yeah, Zon, <laughs> to his credit, does the work. It's not one of those House MD moments where someone says a random word and then uh, House stares and is like, of course, it's this, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a little it's a little better than that. Um, so after that moment, we cut back to Mara and Luke as it's getting dark. Uh, Mara is kind of agonizing over why she hasn't flayed Luke alive, you know, right this minute. And uh, from her kind of uh, internal dialogue, we can we can say it's it's kind of lands on mostly it's like loyalty to Card. And she doesn't really want to want to do him dirty when, you know, he's done so much for her. Um, they end up having a a close encounter with a Vornsker uh, that R two D two was able to tip them off about just in time with his with his sensors, uh, and it's actually described. I think we actually get, and again, I I liked this because it felt really science fictiony. It was a cool portrait of a monster. It says here, a Vornsker stood framed in the circle of light. Its front claws dug into the ground. Its whip tail pointed stiffly back and waving slowly up and down. It paid no attention to the light, but continued moving towards Skywalker. Um, so Listeners they, at home, uh, here's your challenge. Draw us a creature that has uh, front claws and a whip tail. <laughs> I was just happy to get anything else about these animals. <laughs> you, you know what <laughs> I like? I like when... Uh, when Luke says that this forest reminds him of Endor because it's a classic, just this forest reminds me of the only other forest I've ever been in. 
<laughs> right. <laughs> hey, this is a lot like Endor. You guys ever seen that place? You know about this? Um, Luke notices that uh, Card's pet Vornskers, Sturm und Drang, if you recall, do not have these whip tails. Um, so there is evidently that's how you can like the the tails. They're they're whips, so they they whip them around and and smack you with them. But they're also poisonous, so they have like an annoying kind of like bee sting kind of poison to them. But apparently, if you remove those tails. It also removes a great deal of their normal hunting aggression. It says here, so uh, so that's a little more insight into you know what those animals are like and how Card managed to domesticate a couple of them. Again, I appreciated it. Um, well, they kind of have a little more domesticated. Oh boy, here it goes. Here <laughs> but, it is. But, hey. but I also like a, a Luke line where I mean, this is just kind of like adorably dumb. It, it's. It's one of those, like, Homer Simpson, Moe is their leader lines where he says, a forest always sounds so busy at night. <laughs> and it's like, I, if they, if they go with, if they, if they go with the characterization of Luke as kind of like this gentle giant, I appreciate it. Yeah, well, that's kind of ties into some comments I had about this, this scene here is they, you know, they just sort of, you know, uh, they have just had an encounter with a deadly creature who tried to kill them. Uh, and Luke seems pretty at ease. You know, Mara's kind of marveling at just how, you know, he's been stripped of all his vaunted Jedi powers by a planet full of Isalamiri, trapped in a forest on a world whose name and location he didn't even know. With her, the Imperials, and the Vornskers lining up for the privilege of killing him, he should by rights be wide-eyed with pumping adrenaline by now. And uh, I, my comment was just like, Mara, it's, he's just dumb. It's fine. He's just a dumb guy. That's that's why he can float through life this way. It's great. Or um, he has the same calmness of a Jedi, but yeah, I think uh, your theory yeah. is more uh, palatable. I I think it's I think it fits with our evidence a little better. Um, Mara, of course, is uh, she is she is on point and and worked up. So she's just gonna she's popping amphetamine pills to stay awake for this whole thing. Uh, she thumbed a stim pill from the tube and swallowed it. Uh, so she's going to be uh, tweaking for this entire journey, which I think will do wonders for her disposition. Meanwhile, she's also thinking about uh, Talon Card being possibly pinned against a cell wall by an interrogation droid. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, that seems that wanna, an odd... Is an interrogation droid something from the original movies, or is it just something well, for this? I... I thought that, like, you remember when Leia was captured on the Death Star and there's that little floating globe with syringes? Yeah. That that would be what I would think was the interrogation droid. But that's not anything that can, like, hold you against a wall. So, I mean, maybe Mara's thinking of something else. Oh, maybe she's thinking of that droid in Jabba's palace who burned that guy's feet. That's an interrogation droid for you. Yeah. Um... See, there we go. Yeah, the torture chamber droid. Um, so, uh, we, we close out the chapter with a few pages, pretty pointless pages of card just again, kind of like going over the day's events and, you know, scratching Sturm and Drong's heads and kind of the the whole, the whole thing just kind of felt like, you know, Talon card just sitting out there wondering where's the summer gone. (laughs) This just doesn't really move anything forward. I do like, uh, this passage by Avs where, says uh 
I've sat in on a couple of conversations since you made the announcement, and I can tell you that feelings in camp are running pretty strong. Heroes of Rebellion and all that aside, much for our people figure they owe Skywalker big for getting them out of permanent hock to Jabba the Hutt. And I, yeah. and I like that detail because it just sort of creates a, the sensation that there's a bigger universe at play than that, like, these characters have thoughts yeah. and feelings. Yeah, yeah. Um, and their lives are affected by events that have happened in the movies. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and this was actually, you know, there's a note for this. I think, I think TZ was on the same page, and I'm going to give him credit for it. Because he has an end note that says, In the real world, the repercussions of Jabba's death would ripple a long way outward. Little details like that were what helped make the Star Wars movies feel genuine and realistic, and I tried to put some of those same touches into air. Now, I think he's wrong in this note by attributing anything like that to a Star Wars movie, because I don't I don't think there was ever really a touch like that necessarily, but I think it is, you know, he's, he's thinking of it as like, well, how would this affect the setting? And that's that's good. I think that's that's a good good attitude to have. Um... Uh, so that closes out chapter four, and we get to chapter twenty-five, which is a real corker, Ronnie. I don't know how you felt about this one, but this this one this one had some juice to it. I thought it has Leia. It has that that uh, is certainly true. It does have Leia, and it has the single best Betsy note I have seen yet. So we'll we'll get to that in a little bit. Um, so Leia, we cut back to Leia. Of course, she's been hunkered down in Rukoro, the uh, Wookiee city on Kashyyyk. Um, the hubbub around the alien that she thought she spotted has kind of died down. There, there had initially been a big security detail for her search parties going up and down the city, trying to find them. Comb through the city, but, like Harry Imperial walkers. Yes. <laughs> it, not a great line. Listeners I, draw some Harry Imperial walkers, please. And that, yes, we would, we would love to see that. Um, <laughs> but her her initial detachment of twelve bodyguards is now just down to it's just Chewie, Ralra, and Solperin are left kind of protecting her. Um, but we open with her, and it's the middle of the night. And she heard something. She heard something and, and bolted up with a blaster, ready to kill. Uh, she's she's at the end of her rope and is really just ready to call it quits and, and head back to Coruscant. And she's kind of mulling all this over and thinking about it. Uh, I'm thinking about well, I'm going to get on that. You know, it's it's, it's the pre dawn hour. You know, it might be, you know, I'm going to get on the comm link and start getting preparations ready for us to just leave. You know, she can't really stand it. She's convinced that, like, no one's been able to find anything, but they're just waiting for everyone to drop their guard to come get her. So she's she's just got to go. So as she sets her blaster down to pick up the comm link, her arm is seized by a sinewy hand. Ah! It's a Nogri. And Leia struggles with him for a little bit before uh, grabbing her lightsaber, which was under her pillow... And I don't know if that's a safe place to keep a lightsaber because I would worry about like rolling around in my head pressing the button, and like if nothing else, my pillow gets ruined. I mean, I don't know how the button works. <laughs> so, um, but she does get her lightsaber from under her pillow and laser chops that guy's ass. You know, he's dead. Um, but she's grabbed behind by another alien uh, who knocks her lightsaber away, and then a little mysteriously, like you know, they're they're kind of close. He's he's got her grappled. She can feel his uh, snout on her neck. And uh, all of a sudden, he lets go and kind of stands rigid and whispers quickly, Mal Ari Ush. And it's at this moment, Chewie breaks down the door. Leia, guessing that something important is going on, kind of shouts, Don't kill him! So Chewie just plants a haymaker on this little wiry guy's 
face that uh, knocks him across the room and, and knocks him out. Um, apparently, he and Ralra had, uh, had, had taken care of three other Nogri on their way up. But Salperin, Salperin didn't make it. He has passed away. Good old Salperin, who all we know about him is that Chewie is his friend. I don't think he ever had any lines, but he's dead now. Uh, and they wrestle the around no- for a while. Yeah, they kind of wrestle around for a while. They, uh, the Nogri had set a fire at a house down the street to both serve as a distraction and to cover any shouts of alarm. So, you know, if they're going out there being like, hey, something's going on, you know, and everyone's like, yeah, we know, the house fire. So kind of leaving another opening for, you know, the Nogri will be waiting for them to leave to ambush them. So uh, Leia has the idea to cut into the floor of the house with her lightsaber to get them down to, like, you know, how the whole city is on this platform of intertwined branches. They're cutting through the the floor to get down to the branch level. Uh, They're going to crawl along there to get to the spaceport limb of the tree. Uh, kind of like getting into the air ducts there. Uh, and it's here that we have a note from uh, Betsy, our editor. I was pleased during this reread to find very few things I would have edited differently now from the way I did 20 years ago. One exception appears here. It's been a while since we've seen Leia, and obviously some time has passed, yet there's no mention of her advancing pregnancy. It's odd that I didn't request a sentence or two, especially as I was going through my own first pregnancy at the time and discovering that there is not a moment when that developing child escapes a mother's awareness. Yet Leia doesn't give a thought to her baby bump in this very exciting chapter. BM. When she's right, she's right. <laughs> I mean, Betsy knows her stuff. She's, she's got him dead to rights. This is exactly, we've brought this up before. I, it was very gratifying to see that Betsy had noticed this as well. <laughs> well. It's like, why didn't you fucking do anything then, Betsy? You're the editor. Well, she was too starstruck by Timothy Zahn and all of his cool science knowledge. And his, and his deft use of the cliffhanger ending. <laughs> she was just bowled over. Um, so Rawler and Chewie go first, down through the hole that Leia cut with her lightsaber. And to speed things along, actually, Leia is strapped to Chewie's chest. He's actually wounded, so he's got some blood. So there's actually a pretty evocative little description of how she's clinging to dear life to Chewie's chest as she feels the kind of blood, you know, the wet matted fur against her own uh, face and chest. Um, But they ride along as they do the Wookiee maneuver of hanging upside down and using their claws to kind of, you know, lope on down the branch. And I I think Zahn must have seen a sloth at the zoo (laughs) and kind of... Based, based his description on this because it just does sound like the way a, a sloth would move along a branch but kind of fast instead of very slow um, but as they're moving along Ralra spots an airspeeder hovering close behind them with all of its lights out so it can't be a Wookiee rescue vehicle or anything like that that has to be the Nogri who are following close behind them in this, you know, this hovercraft the airspeeder um, is waiting for an opportunity to capture Leia but Leia has an idea. This one I really liked. I liked this a lot. Leia has an idea. She takes some of the rope that, they, that they've carried with them uh, for uh, you know, tying together purposes. And just, you know, rope is useful to have when you live in a tree city. And uh, she ties one end off to a branch. And then urges uh, Chewie to keep going. You know, keep, keep moving, keep moving. For some distance. Then she tells Chewie to stop, turns on her lightsaber, and drops it. But that's because she had tied off the lightsaber so that it swings like a pendulum back and under the airspeeder, slicing into its underside and destroying its repulsor generator to send it dropping like a stone into the gloom. I thought that was pretty awesome. I thought that was a clever 
way to use a lightsaber. And hats off to Timothy Zahn and Princess Leia for uh, for thinking of it. I like that Princess Leia thought of it, uh, but uh, Luke never did. <laughs> I I really do get the feeling like you know Luke is too. Luke is too tied up in his Jedi notions of a lightsaber being a civilized weapon, you know, an elegant weapon for a more civilized age. You know, people got to realize like, no, what you got here, you got here like an all purpose, you know, uh, uh, brush cutter. You got you can dig into your floor with it. Like, you know, there's a lot you can do with a lightsaber. So they haul themselves back up to street level after all this. They're pretty they're, they're convinced that that must have been the last of the Nogri kill team, um, except, of course, for the one they had knocked out. Who was now in custody in Wookiee jail? Man, this whole uh, this whole bit is insane. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna read <laughs> yeah. it. The yeah, alien please. was sitting motionless in a low seat in the tiny police interrogation room. Okay, now we've established that Wookies have police, Wookie and, police. and interrogation uh-huh. rooms. A small bandage on the side of his head, the only external evidence of Chewbacca's blow. Okay, they have bandages, like a little band aid. <laughs> Yeah, his hands are resting in his lap. The fingers laced intricately together, stripped of all clothing and equipment. Okay, that's weird. Uh, he'd been given a loose Wookiee robe to wear. On someone else, the effect of the outside's garment might have been comical, but not on him. No, I think it's comical. <laughs> Neither the robe nor his inactivity did anything to hide the aura of deadly competence that wore that he wore like a second skin. He was, probably always would be, a member of the dangerous and persistent group of trained killing machines. Yeah, yeah. I think that's uh, doing a lot of, like, uh, retroactive uh, writing uh, there, Zahn. You're making this guy seem a lot more badass than he actually is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's Yeah, it's definitely kind of like, well, it's like how they look like a bodyguard. Or just, Zahn's kind of like, just trust the, the, me. This, this the guy small, wiry bodyguard. The small, wiry bodyguard. as <laughs> The small, skinny bodyguard, as bodyguards are so commonly known to be. Um, yeah, he wants to see Leia like, in person like uh, Hannibal Lecter. Wants to see uh, Clarice Starling. Right, right. So she ends up having a conversation with this Nogri, um, who goes by the name of, uh, well, as humans can pronounce it, Kabarak. Where she learns that at some point, um, so that, oh no no this I, as I, my note says here, this little pervert asks to smell Leia's hand, <laughs> um, and then just to kind of double check because apparently she smells like Darth Vader. They're able to pick up that she's the daughter of their master, Darth Vader. So she has a little conversation with this Nogri with Kabarak where she learns that at some point in the Rebellion War, there's that terminology I decided to use, there was a, uh, a, a great space battle, a kind of, you know, some capital ships really blasting each other, occurred over the Nogri planet, but that had the collateral damage that left it uh, devastated in the Nogri on the brink of total annihilation. But after the, in the aftermath of the battle, Darth Vader had come to them and helped them rebuild, so they pledged themselves to his and the Emperor's service. And at some point, Vader had seconded these Nogri fighters to Admiral Thrawn. So knowing that this is their one chance to kind of get to the bottom of several things at once, you know, be actually talking to the, you know, to a Nogri, Leia plays it diplomatically and leans on her status as Lady Vader to propose that uh, Kabarak go home to tell, because he's, he's saying like, look, 
we would never have agreed to do this if we knew that you were Lady Vader. You know, the Nogri were not going to try to kidnap Darth Vader's daughter. Um, so she agrees that they are going to let him go so that he can go home to tell the other Nogri what he has learned about this woman that they have been assigned to target and let them decide what to do. And in one month's time, she will rendezvous with him in orbit over Endor. Leia heads back to the Lady Luck to prepare to leave while Rara and Chewie attend. Uh, apparently, there's this is the Wookiees only memorial service for Salperin. Um, but there is some kind of like after party that non-Wookiees are allowed to go to that uh, will be in a couple hours. So Leia has uh, some time to reflect on uh, all the pain and uh, violence that follows her wherever she goes. And that's chapter 25. I want to know when the fuck Darth Vader had his summer working for Habitat for Humanity. <laughs> now, I'm sure this is a matter of, like, Darth Vader goes and, you know, orders the a bunch of Wookiee slaves to help the, the Nogri or something like that. <clears throat> but, yeah, you're right. It is kind of funny to think of Darth Vader, like inspecting the aftermath of a battle and being like, oh, we can help you and, and you can help me. He's uh, slathering I don't bricks. Know. He's got a hammer. He's he's putting stuff together. <laughs> he's got he's he's got his little uh he's got his little hard hat on, but it's like totally clean because he's never actually like worked anything, but he's there kind of like glad handing and doing photo ops. Yeah. Well I mean isn't his um, helmet already his hard hat? Yeah, but he's got a hard hat on top of the helmet to protect the helmet. It's OSHA stuff, uh, Ronnie. Just, you know, look, just, Space just OSHA? follow the safety. Space OSHA. <laughs> yes. This is totally a situation where, like, Darth Vader inadvertently, like, helped these people, and now they're just forever in his debt, and he's like, yeah, okay, whatever. Gross, <laughs> yeah, they're kind gross of like, gray the, the people. Fact, right, the fact that he's at some point just like, uh, look, go hang out with this uh, particular officer who's out in the back end of nowhere. Thrawn. This is very important to me. You guys go. Go, go. Very important. Bye. He's just bitching to Tarkin <laughs> about all these uh, all these little uh, little bodyguards that are hanging around him like minions. Yes. <laughs> um, so we move on now to chapter 26. Uh, that's right, everybody. We're doing four chapters in this episode because uh, uh, Ronnie added it all up. And we really, we have material for, we're in the home stretch. After this episode, there are uh, six more chapters. So we'll have two more uh, three-chapter episodes after this one. But we decided to go ahead and make the, uh, you know, for, for I think, symmetry's sake. You'll see why. Um, so we'll make uh, chapter 26, you know, uh, to, to make this all even. Um, but Mara is uh, bushwhacking her way through the forest with Luke Skywalker's lightsaber. Um, it's her third day... Without any sleep, Luke says that she's she's gone without sleep for two days. So this is she's you know day into day three, and it's starting to get to her. Um, they bicker a bit. Uh, another Vornsker attacks. She nails it, but it's not quite as clean as it has been. She's clearly you know losing her edge. Um, and then they get to a suitable clearing to put the balloon antenna up. So that they can see if they've gotten any word back from their uh, their desperate missive that they sent off to Luke's X-wing, which I guess now there's been enough time has passed that uh, Han and and Talon Card and everybody would have uh, gone to go gone to go check on it and uh, sent some kind of response. Um, so 
they uh, they get the get the transceiver going, and oh look at that, they do have a uh, a message, and there's finally a message that they come. Well, let's have it, Mara growled, and here <laughs> here we have honestly some of the most like Thrawn is just or Thrawn Zon is just <laughs> really th- Zon, see author insert. Um, all right, you'll see what I mean with the way Zahn talks about C-3PO. So here we go. <clears throat> the droid bent forward slightly and a holographic image appeared on the matted leaves. But not an image of Card, as she'd expected. It was instead an image of a golden-skinned protocol droid. Good day, Master Luke, the protocol droid said in a remarkably prissy voice. I bring greetings to you from Captain Card, and of course to you as well, Mr. Smara. It added, almost as an afterthought, he and Captain Solo are most pleased to hear you are both alive and well after your accident. Uh, and then it continues. I trust you'll be able to decrypt this message, R2, the protocol prissy continued. <laughs> Captain Card suggested that I be used to add a bit more confusion to the counterpart encrypt. So in the space of two paragraphs, <laughs> Zahn has, has dropped the, the P slur twice. Once, once as an adjective, the second time as a noun. You could get away with a lot of shit in the early 90s. I... Where was Betsy? I, you know... I like that I, not only is it a prissy voice, it's a remarkably prissy voice. It's a remarkably prissy like, voice. Like, you need to remark and, about it. About how... And, hey, you, you hear that uh, <laughs> that prissy, uh, that protocol droid? <laughs> I also, I also love... I really, I honestly, like, I I feel bad saying the phrase, the protocol prissy. Like, that's a really... <laughs> that should not be allowed to be said. It's really something. Um, so, uh, uh... Well, so this here we was have, LGBT you know, representation in the early this, 90s. That's true. This was, in the early 90s, this was, this was the best you got. Yeah. You know, typically you had, uh, you know, hair metal guys wearing T-shirts uh, about how they're happy that AIDS kills gay people and stuff like that. Um, but 3PO... That was one guy. Pills. Come on. I know. He's a famous shithead. I know. But still, it's just real. That sticks in my craw to this day. Um, he made up for it by being on Trailer Park Boys. <laughs> he, he did. And we, and, we, and we thank him for his service. Uh, so three, C-3PO informs them that the Imperials are waiting to ambush them in Hilliard City. Uh, so uh, they, you know, he tells them what Card's cover story is, and they suggest that since Card did not mention that Jade, his employee Jade, was a woman, that they could bamboozle anybody they run into by having Luke pretend to be Jade and Mara, the prisoner who escaped. Huh? Luke says that's a good idea. Uh, as he managed to rouse himself, as I, as I wrote here, Luke says that's a good idea as he managed to rouse himself from his lazy hillbilly siesta to listen in. Because Morrow was trying to get this message while Luke was asleep. Drifting in and uh, out, but, as he says. Uh, drifting in and out. <laughs> Again, the, the Jedi, everybody. Drifting in and out. Uh, but Morrow just decides that instead of not going to Hilliard City, they're just going to take the long way around and approach the town from the plains from the north rather than from the woods. And that gives them a better chance to kind of get around whatever ambush is going to be set up. Uh, Luke falls back asleep. <laughs> he is my hero. 
And then suddenly Mara is slammed to the ground. And as she passes out, she wishes she had killed Luke Skywalker. <laughs> um, so Luke is roused by R2-D2 screaming and sees a Vornsker about to take the killing bite on Mara Jade's throat and tries to scare the animal away using the crate dragon scream bit that Ben Kenobi used to scare away the Sand People. Hey, Ronnie, do you, do you remember that? Do you remember that from Star Wars? I you spent remember? a long time thinking about this and thinking, like, do dragons exist in Star Wars? Um, well, the the crate dragon is it's just a it's just a big reptile. It's like a dinosaur. Uh, so I mean, if you want to call that a dragon, sure, but I don't think it has like magic powers. Yeah, but are there any like winged lizards in Star Wars? Oh, there's got to be somewhere. I mean, I'm so they <laughs> like we through an... fire and shit. Uh, probably, probably not so much that, but I'm sure we'll read enough uh, EU material that we'll get to the the planet where people ride uh, winged reptiles, you know, at some point. Oh yeah, I forgot um, that was the end goal of this podcast, which is to read the entire EU. <laughs> Maybe not the entire EU, but at least hit some highlights or lowlights, as it were. Um, so uh, this Vornsker is startled enough, you know, that Mara has a chance. You know, she's she's kind of shaken too. Uh, she was stunned for a little bit, but she's come to. She has a chance to get her hands around its its throat while Luke attempts to tackle it, and he gets poison tail whipped for his trouble. Uh, a tussle ensues. Luke is finally able to land the killing blow with his recovered lightsaber. Uh, Mara recovers quickly, sticks her blaster in Luke's face, and gets him to drop the lightsaber. Uh, Luke complies and goes to tend to the battered R2-D2. And there is a note here, and... I was a little appalled. You'll see what I mean here. Here we go. So, uh, R2-D2 had, he, he lost another couple of appendages. Like, he had his little shocker thing out to try to try to get the Vornsker to go away, and it, that got punched off and a couple other things. So, uh, here we have a note. Killing off a character, or even just lopping off one of his or her major body parts, can be highly traumatic. Not only for the character, but for the audience. Just ask Luke. That's one of the handy things about droids. You can rip off any component you need to, and after a quick visit to the body shop, everything will be fine. Gilbert Gottfried, who voiced the parrot Yago in Disney's Aladdin, once commented that the screenwriter's philosophy seemed to be, when in doubt, hurt the bird. Not that I would ever deliberately think that way about R2. Of course not. TZ. I like how he's blaming Gilbert Gottfried for this. He's blaming Gilbert Gottfried for his own sadistic, twisted, droid-hating urges. It's disgusting. disgusting. Well, you're either... If you're a droid, you're either getting mutilated or you're gay. <laughs> and sometimes both at once, like what happened to C-3PO at the end of uh, uh, Empire Strikes Back in Cloud City. Yeah, that's He true. got blasted to pieces. Yeah. It's, t- it's, it's, it's hard being a droid in Star Wars. Um, so after all this, uh, Luke finally broaches the subject, what happened to you? <laughs> and so, here it is, everybody, the reveal. We have the reveal. We finally learn why Mara Jade hates Luke Skywalker with the passion of a thousand burning, exploding suns. It's dumber it than turns you out, think. It turns out that Mara Jade was a dancer at Jabba's palace, but... 
that wasn't all she was because she was a dancer at Java's Palace undercover because she was a force sensitive secret agent for the Emperor. I thought you were going to say she, she had, was like studying for uh, law school and she was, <laughs> she was, she was dancing she was making her way bills. through law school. <laughs> No, not even that. She had been dispatched to Jabba's palace specifically to assassinate Luke Skywalker when he undoubtedly came to rescue his friend Han Solo. The Emperor determined that there was be no way he would let Han Solo remain frozen in carbonite as a trophy in Jabba's palace. Ergo, he placed his right-hand assassin agent there in the palace to do the job. Only fate saved Luke that day, as Jabba decided not to bring her on board the sail barge for the execution party. So it turns out her whole life had been running covert ops directly for the Emperor, outside of any Imperial bureaucracy, outside of any record keeping. She was just purely a creature of the Emperor's personal behest, and Luke Skywalker blew her world apart by killing him. Now, she was so secret that she would not have been able to find any place in the Imperial Remnant, as no one knew who she was. Anyone who had seen her just assumed that she was a bit of, you know, uh, just a pretty face that the Emperor liked to keep around for a bit of court decoration. So she spent four and a half years bouncing from job to job in the worst scum pits of the galaxy until she fell in with Cards Bunch about six months ago and kind of started putting her life back together. So that's the story of why Mara Jade hates the shit out of Luke Skywalker and wants to kill him. Uh, and she says here, the, 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 the chapter rounds off with uh, her eyes were steady on him with a trace of hatred fire back in them. I worked hard to get where I am, Skywalker. You're not going to ruin it for me. Not this time. I don't want to ruin anything for you, Luke told her evenly. All I want is to get back to the New Republic. And I want the old empire back, she retorted. We don't always get what we want, do we? Luke shook his head. No, we don't. And there, and, and there we go. Uh, she, she, for a moment she glared at him, then abruptly she scooped up a, tu- a tube of salve and tossed it to him. Here, get that welt fixed up and get some sleep. Tomorrow's going to be a busy day. See, that's her Dom that's, persona coming out. That is her Dom persona. And that's chapter 26. So we really we really had a lot of... We had a lot of big reveals going on here. I, and and I, I do like that we're finally getting something like that here in the last... I, I gotta tell you, it really does feel like Timothy is finally interested in the book he's writing. <laughs> if that makes any sense. <laughs> Because I, I feel like we actually... I, Sorry, go ahead. I think Mara Jade's whole deal is gross, because the only thing yeah. I can imagine when she's talking about being the Emperor's hand is I imagine that she's a Playboy bunny and and uh, Palpatine is Hugh Hefner. Uh, right, right. Like it was, Or at least like that's that's the arrangement that everyone thought it was. But actually, she was his like personal assassin or something. Yeah, like Hugh Hefner's bunnies in real life. Like the bunny that's right. <laughs> that's a good point. I forgot. Yes. Oh boy. But uh, yeah. So that's that ends our recap for this episode, Ronnie. Any any kind of closing thoughts or anything, or uh, what are you looking forward to? What surprised you? You know, what's 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 going on in that noggin of yours? Well, I just said that the uh, Mara Jade revelation is kind of skeevy. I do appreciate that it happened at all because I was getting. 
kind of tired of the constant, uh, oh, she hates Luke so much for reasons we're not going to say because we won't. Right. Right, right. I, I've discovered that that's a, that's a kind of literary, I don't know, turn or trick that I really don't care for. Um, because I recently read a, uh, you know, I, 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 every now and then try to read contemporary science fiction and fantasy. Um, I, I typically don't have all that good a time with it. And I return to my, my uh, comfortable uh, crate digging into the 60s, 70s, and 80s stuff. Um, but... Uh, I did recently read uh, a, a science fantasy called uh, Gideon the Ninth, um, which was it had a lot going for it. I I I, I finished it. Like I, I I didn't you know put it down and walk away from it. But it was really annoying because the central dynamic of this book is that you have two kind of late teenage, early twenties characters who grew up in this sort of aristocratic house together who hate each other and are constantly. Just these two girls just constantly just biting and hissing at each other and, and undermining each other and just being real catty all the time. And you don't find out why they hate each other or why one hates the other until, like, almost the end of the book. So it really just ends up being an entire book of, of two young women being really nasty to each other and you have no idea why. <laughs> it was just really kind of irritating, I felt. I find it offensive yeah, I, that you read non-Star Wars books. Uh, there was a lot of Star Wars in this book's DNA. Does that help? No, unless okay. it's licensed by Lucasfilm. <laughs> it then doesn't it's, then count. It's, uh, it's it's off limits. I got you. Well, this was before we actually started the Thronderdome project. So, uh, now rest rest assured, everybody, I have not read anything not written by Timothy Zahn for the purpose of uh, George Lucas's. A uh, wonderful vision since we have started this podcast. I have been, I remain pure and clean. So, just so everyone's aware. Good. Yes. <laughs> well, now that we have the recap out of the way, out of the way, I mean, it's the meat of the show. We love doing it out of the way. I shouldn't have said that. Now that the recap has concluded, we get on to our next segment, which is, of course, the always very exciting, absolutely thrilling, the Titanic. Uh, the 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 titanomachy, to to borrow a term from Greek mythology, the 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 just awesome cosmic clash between minds, between between thought itself, channeled between myself and Ronnie Gardaki, that we fight it out into the Thronder Dome. That is right. We are going to take a uh, topic for debate. Our these two muscle-brained. Uh, uh, gladiators are going to struggle with one another and who will come out on top. Ronnie is our reigning, uh, eight and a half time champion. Yes. Uh, so that, you know, I would just point out, I can still surprise you. So Ronnie, what is our debate topic for this round? The American office, the TV show. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Now this is another one that is, an actual genuine disagreement that Ronnie and I have. So we actually do have real positions on it. Um, so Ronnie, how do you feel we should divvy this up? I think traditionally we've done the pro uh, argument first and then there's a rebuttal, right? Yes. 
Okay. All right. Well, that's uh, that. That lands on me. So let me kind of gather my thoughts for a second here. Okay. In the year two thousand one, I was a freshman in college, and I had a crush on a girl. Uh, she had a boyfriend, um, but that didn't stop me from thinking, "I hey, I could I could win her over," uh, and. She actually introduced me to The Office, which was a a sitcom from Dear Old Blighty from the UK. Uh, It had just recently been released, I think really just like the year before. Um, So it was kind of new at the time, and I had not seen a lot of uh, British television, really. Uh, And I was over the moon. I loved it. I thought it was hilarious. It made me die inside. It made me laugh. It's it really truly is no matter whatever you want to say about Ricky Gervais, that show was lightning in a bottle. I mean, it really captures something. It's incredible. Fast forward a few years. And of course, we get The Office US. This was a uh, an adaptation of uh, the uh, groundbreaking British workplace sitcom, which uh, in its first season really hewed very closely to the source material in a way that was actually kind of detrimental to the entire project. So by the second season, they kind of broke it away and made it their own thing. Now, the U.S. office came to be one of the most popular and beloved comedic series of the 21st century. It is a an inescapable element of millennial culture. It has a uh, the, the visual language of screen captures from the show are all over the memeiverse. Um, it truly is an inescapable Titan, but I would posit that it is such an inescapable Titan because it did its job well. Yes, it may not be as biting a satire as the original UK office. Yes, it may have had quite a few corny turns in the character moments that, uh, that it decided to do. It had a lot of misbegotten arcs, and stuff that just didn't work. But at the end of the day, what it was, was a very reliable joke delivery machine. I posit the United States version of The Office, while not the same type of funny as the UK Office, is also a valuable and very funny, reliable joke delivery system. And that concludes my my opening remarks. Well, uh, I would like to say that, uh, Daniel, you're wrong. Um, (laughs) The UK office had more to say in 14 episodes than the US office did in uh, 295. Uh, The UK office properly depicted the the office uh, workplace as a uh, hellish hellish uh, environment in which uh, in which you're bombarded with uh, pointless busy work and annoying uh, co-workers and a obtrusive uh, offensive and loathsome boss uh, they never tried to uh, make the characters uh, like overly sympathetic or you never you never had the occasion where you were like uh, oh I I hope Gareth uh, finds a love interest uh no <laughs> there was always a sense of melancholy that uh, that at best these people were wasting their lives in a paper uh, paper company uh office space 
and uh, it all it all uh, culminated in the holiday special in which characters did receive something of a happy ending, and that is what is important. There was an ending. There was an ending after mm. fourteen episodes, whereas uh, the Office went on for six hundred and seventy-eight episodes. Yeah, I think it probably had, it had at least. It was a bit like Return of the King, and then it ended three or four times. Really, <laughs> like I, I would say that, like I think you could have a Jim and Pam's wedding as one ending, uh, Michael Scott leaving Dunder Mifflin uh, for good is another ending, and then you had the weird Steve Carell-less couple of seasons that petered out, and you know, and, and I'm not going to defend those. I, I'm, I'm not. <clears throat> I, I did not enjoy them. Uh, well, but it's part I, of the I, I do, show. I do take that point. Yeah, so you have so, to defend I, I, it. I don't. <laughs> I don't have to defend it. All I have to do is say that there's value in the U.S. office, and that's worth watching. It is not worth watching. Uh, just watch the original because it uh, portrays office life the way it's supposed to be, and not a, a collection of quirky characters that become your your uh, excuse for a social life. The because the American <laughs> office uh, puts forth the disgraceful notion that uh, your coworkers are supposed to be an ersatz family for you, which is how capitalism justifies uh, cutting a, cutting away into the uh, work life balance even further. Because you're not, no. you don't actually, you don't actually need you know uh, off time or, or, or social life or friends outside of work when you can just have your entire social life occur inside of work, which is established <laughs> with uh, the U.S. office. That's that's a powerful argument. I'll give you that. Um, um and here's and I know I'm in on shakier ground here considering uh. Uh, Ricky Gervais has made some not so great uh, choices after the <laughs> office, but I would point to the uh, star of uh, the American Office, Office Jim, as he's called, mm-hmm. is now doing mm-hmm. State Department propaganda for Amazon. <laughs> That's that is also a good point. But Ronnie, let me let me let me let me let me run something by you. Let me run something by you. Uh, do you enjoy? Uh, King of the Hill? Yes. Would you say that that is a quality comedy television show that is a reliable joke delivery system that also has a certain degree of real affection for its characters? I know where you're going with this, and I know who Greg Daniels is. (laughs) That's right. Greg Daniels, co-creator of King of the Hill. Co-creator of King of the Hill. And also of The Office. Now, Ronnie, I would think your objections uh, you know what, to, uh, what to The Greg Office... You know what Daniels also created? What? The Steve Carell series Space Force. Uh, I haven't seen it. I don't... Uh, it could be really good. <laughs> you know. know for a fact it's not very good. <laughs> hey, wasn't, uh, wasn't Tim Heidecker on some kind of like astronaut comedy show? That that is not bit. Space Force. Okay, all right. Well, um, uh, Greg Good Daniels also worked on The Simpsons. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right, all right. Also, all right. You saw through my also ruse. the American Office uh, 
created even worse uh, successors like uh, Parks and Rec and a lot of other shows yeah. that use the uh, talk-to-the-camera uh, found-footage sort of uh, filming style. That's, uh, I mean, that's fair. I think... Um, I well, mean, I'm, you could I'm tie Parks more... and Rec to the downfall of American liberalism if you want to. <laughs> Parks and Rec is an incredible document of what I call high Obamaism. Uh, and we don't have to get into it now. I, I honestly, I'm still kind of ordering my thoughts on this thesis. I'm writing about it, but the the fact that that show ends with a uh, a Silicon Valley tech giant rescuing small a small town by investing in it is really all. It says a lot about that particular strain of American liberalism for sure. Um. Anyway, all right. Well, I think Ronnie this is when we have again. to leave up to the listeners. I think we leave it up to the listeners. I think I made some very cogent points. Uh, and uh, you know what? Sure. I'm not. Yeah. I mean, at this point, you're asking people to, to like put their faith in rain. Wilson. I look, buddy, I find the character Dwight Schrute and the performance by rain Wilson to be very funny. I think it really tapped into something that a certain type of, you know, kind of more or less latent, much more blatant these days, fascism in uh, certain strains of American nerd culture. I thought that that was very funny. Uh, the backdoor pilot for the Dwight Schrute spinoff that they tried to do in one of those last couple seasons is one of the lamest episodes of television I've ever seen. Uh, and it's very funny. Garrus is a better watch, Dwight knowing... than Dwight or Lover B. I think Dwight Dwight is a Dwight. Dwight began life as a Gareth, but I think as part of the show growing, he, he got away from that character. Uh, yeah, and then he but, had like the Beat Farm pilot. Yes. All right. I already said I, I'm not going to defend that one. <laughs> anyway, all right. We'll we'll leave it here. We'll leave it ambiguous. We'll, Finish like, him. Like the, uh, <laughs> this will this will be like the ending of The Sopranos. We'll let the audience figure it out. Fatality. Ronnie wins. <laughs> all right you're just you're having so much fun i'm gonna let you think you won but uh you know when it comes to making small talk at a party i i, I know who's gonna win if you bring up your favorite office bits and it, it's u.s office versus uk office and i know that's just an argument from popularity but i'm i'm staking i'm staking my claim on it i mean also, Adolf hitler was uh, popular Gavel- too so yeah i i, I this is not the time to get into the nature of the the Nazi party and and its control of Germany. Uh, but... I mean, I'm sure Adolf Hitler started a lot of sassy gifts. Oh, well, I'm at it. He really uh, would. We wouldn't have had this uh, terrible cartoon Velma if not for the Office, U.S. So there. That that is true. I'm definitely not going to turn this into a Mindy Kaling apologia segment because I, I do think she is a very talented comedy writer. She wrote a lot of my favorite episodes of the U.S. office. So at least at one point, I was absolutely, whatever wavelength she was on, I also enjoyed. Um, but we, again, we're, we're getting to but our Now that uh, wavelength is uh, Velma. Ah, all right, all right, all right. I am closing commentary on this uh, this this Thronderdome debate, uh, ding ding! That's the Law and Order sound, and uh, from here we just gotta wrap it up. So, Ronnie, 
<laughs> and wonderful as always to uh, to to struggle brain on brain uh, with a uh, a very worthy interlocutor. And I thank you for this gift of debate, which is of course the lifeblood of democracy. And um, speaking of democracy, we shall all uphold the new republic against reactionary Thronian forces next time when uh, we get to the uh, the next section of Heir to the Empire, chapters 27, 28, and 29. And uh, in the meantime, everyone out there, uh, remember, please uh, spay and neuter your Voinskers, and good night. Good night. I beat you fair and square. Yeah, you didn't expect Space Force. I think we should do a Thronderdome where we both agree that Michael Schur sucks. The debate is how much he sucks. Michael sure looks like a goddamn lizard. I'm sending you the picture now. Is he Jewish? Okay, he is Jewish, but I'd still say he looks like a lizard. And he's married to the daughter of Regis Philbin. J.J. Philbin. Married to a fucking Nepo baby. Well, you're a nepo, you're a nepo baby if you, if your parents have Wikipedia entries. I'm gonna like fast track like an animated series called Nepo Babies that becomes like horribly out of date by the time it comes out. Yeah, or, or Space Force. Yeah, they really showed Trump. <laughs>